This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Days in Jewish Observer, and I'm happy to be with you this week for the Jewish News Hour. I'll start off reading from the Jewish Insider, the first article, Deborah Lipstadt to be named State Department Anti-Semitism Envoy. The Holocaust historian will take the role amid a recent rise in anti-Semitic incidents in the United States. By Gabby Deutsch and Mark Rod. After months of deliberation and calls from congressional and Jewish community leaders, the White House will name Emory University professor and historian Deborah Lipstadt to be the administration's special envoy to monitor and combat anti-Semitism, a source familiar with the matter confirmed to Jewish Insider. Lipstadt is a noted Holocaust historian whose most recent book, Anti-Semitism Here and Now, won a 2019 National Jewish Book Award. She has served as a consultant to and a fellow at the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum and is widely known for successfully defeating a lawsuit in which she was accused of libel for referring to writer David Irving as a Holocaust denier. Lipstadt declined to comment when asked about her appointment to the position. The Holocaust historian's selection received enthusiastic praise from a range of figures in the Jewish community. She has been a model of a passionate, committed academic who is not afraid to be a practical activist as well, and I think that makes her uniquely suited for the position. Mark Weitzman, who serves as Director of Government Affairs at the Simon Wiesenthal Center and has known Lipstadt for decades, told J.I. on Thursday. Weitzman had also been under consideration for the role. She has a history of engaged scholarship, she has a history of being willing to speak out and fight anti-Semitism when she sees it, and I think she's got to be a really strong and vigorous advocate for an administration that has committed itself to fighting anti-Semitism. Representative Brad Schneider, Democrat of Michigan, who helped lead the push last year to upgrade the anti-Semitism envoy position to ambassador level, said he first met Lipstadt on a trip to Poland and Israel in 1990. For decades, she has served as both academic and activist, inspiring policymakers to confront the harsh realities of anti-Semitism in our world and fight for justice. I can't imagine a better, more qualified person to lead the United States' efforts to combat anti-Semitism, Schneider said. Amid recent rising anti-Semitism both in the United States and around the globe, Deborah Lipstadt will lead with a vigorous moral clarity. I wish her the best in her service. Representative Josh Gottheimer, Democrat of New Jersey, called the choice inspired. Dr. Lipstadt is a widely respected scholar who literally wrote the book on confronting anti-Semitism and Holocaust denial, Gottheimer told J.I. I look forward to working together with the Special Envoy, Secretary Blinken, and members of both parties in Congress to combat anti-Semitism in all its forms. Anti-Defamation League CEO Jonathan Greenblatt called Lipstadt an inspired selection and a woman of courage who has worked with ADL for years. Professor Lipstadt's academic credentials are second to none in the field of understanding anti-Semitism. More than that, she has been an indefatigable and intrepid combatant against the scourge of Holocaust denial in all its forms, added Jewish Federations of North America President and CEO Eric Fingerhut. We can think of no better candidate for the position.
Former ADL National Director Abe Foxman, another contender for the post, told J.I. that Lipstadt is an excellent choice and a consummate, experienced professional, passionate in her love of the Jewish people, and a fierce fighter in the fight against anti-Semitism. Jack Rosen, president of the American Jewish Congress, told J.I. that Lipstadt is an excellent choice, choice and the perfect combination of both a scholar and activist on the Holocaust. Earlier this week, a swastika was found etched into an elevator at the State Department. Earlier this year, then-President Donald Trump signed a bill elevating the anti-Semitism envoy position to the rank of ambassador, meaning Lipstadt will have to be confirmed by the Senate. The Biden administration has been very promising, uh, has been promising for nearly two months that the appointment would be announced very, very soon, as pressure has mounted from Capitol Hill and Jewish groups amid a spate of anti-Semitic incidents both domestically and internationally. Domestically, anti-Semitic incidents rose 75% during the two weeks of violent conflict between Israel and Hamas in May, according to Anti-Defamation League data. Several high-profile anti-Semitic attacks and vandalism incidents occurred in Europe and elsewhere during the same period. President Joe Biden released a statement on May 28th saying the uptick in anti-Semitic attacks are despicable, unconscionable, un-American, and they must stop. But the statement stopped short of detailing any specific steps the administration would take. Last week, the top White House Office for Religious Engagement announced that the administration planned to name an anti-Semitism envoy soon. Melissa Rogers, the executive director of the White House Office of Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships, made the announcement at a gathering hosted by the Jewish Federations of North America, but gave no indication as to who the administration might name. Other individuals considered for the post included National Coalition Supporting Eurasian Jewry CEO Mark Levin, Biden Campaign Jewish Outreach Director Aaron Kayak, former envoy Ira Foreman, former National Council of Jewish Women CEO Nancy Kaufman, and University of California at Berkeley Professor Ethan Katz. And next we'll go over to Jewish Telegraphic Agency. Orthodox institutions dominate Jewish ritual in Israel. Could the new government change that? By Ben Sales. When Israel's current government managed to unseat longtime Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu last month, it did so by the narrowest of majorities and with the most ideologically diverse coalition in history. Now that the government has turned to governing, it's unclear what it can accomplish. The coalition, which includes right-wing, centrist, and left-wing parties, as well as an Islamist party, is divided on the future of the West Bank, Arab-Jewish relations within Israel, domestic spending, and even marijuana legislation. But this government might be able to make some progress on one set of issues that has, had, uh, that has long bedeviled Israeli society, the state's involvement in religious life. For decades, Haredi or ultra-Orthodox politicians have dominated the nation's religious affairs. Advocates for pluralism are hoping now that the absence of Haredim from this coalition will herald a liberalization of its public religious life. It is clear that there is much to be happy about and hope for change in the future, read a newsletter sent by the religious pluralism advocacy group Hindush days after the coalition was sworn in. But the newsletter also cautioned that the coalition's fractious makeup made any progress uncertain 
and that there are many question marks regarding the actual future path of the new government in this arena. Here's why the Israeli government might be poised to break the status quo on religion and which issues could be addressed first. Haredi institutions dominate public Israeli religious life. When Israel calls itself a Jewish state, it isn't referring only to the way most of its citizens identify or its public holidays. Government involvement in Judaism extends to nearly every sphere of public life, from whom Jews can marry to where, uh, from who Jews can marry to where they eat to what they learn in school. A big reason for that is the control that Haredi authorities wield over public religious life. Believing orthodoxy to be a dying phenomenon, the founders of Israel set a policy in the state's early days that gave a body called the Chief Rabbinate a monopoly over a variety of religious ceremonies in Israel. Other, other legislation backed by Haredi political parties whose power has not died but grown have made orthodox preferences the law of the land, including in these areas. Marriage. Within Israel, the government recognizes only orthodox marriages certified by the chief rabbinate. Same-sex marriages are not legal, and those that are performed are not recognized. Israelis who want a non-orthodox marriage must be married outside the country, then have their marriages recognized after the fact by the government. Conversion. Under law, Israel uh, offers citizenship to anyone with one Jewish grandparent. But within the country, the chief rabbinate effectively controls conversion and recognizes only certain Orthodox conversions. So if an individual or their mother converted with conservative or Reform Judaism, they cannot marry legally in Israel because the chief rabbinate does not view them as Jewish. Buses and Commerce on Sabbath Public transit does not run in the vast majority of Israeli cities on Shabbat. Haredi parties have also pushed legislation recently to force stores to close on the day of rest. Kosher certification. The chief rabbinate has a monopoly on certifying restaurants and other establishments as kosher. A more liberal standard is prohibited by law from using the word kosher on its certificates. Army service. Haredi men are largely exempt from Israel's mandatory military draft and instead study in yeshivas, many of which receive government funding. The majority of Israelis want all these things to change, supporting civil marriage, transit on Shabbat, military service for Haredi men, and more. But over the past several years, Haredi parties allied with the Prime Minister managed to block any of those moves. That just changed. The current coalition is defined as much by who it includes as by who it leaves out. Haredi parties were able to maintain their power for decades because they were part of nearly every government governing coalition in Israel to the right and left. They gave the prime minister political support in exchange for control of religious institutions and policies. Over the past several years, the Haredi parties allied closely with Netanyahu, who delivered on their wish list while he served for more than a decade in office, largely with Haredi politicians as partners. Netanyahu increased funding to Haredi institutions, maintained Haredi control of religious affairs, and refrained from enforcing COVID restrictions in Haredi cities. But when Netanyahu lost power, so did his Haredi allies. For the first time in six years, Haredi parties are in the opposition while advocates of religious liberalization 
hold positions of influence in the government. Religious pluralism activists view this coalition as a potential game-changer for the causes they have long pursued. The head of the coalition's largest party, Foreign Minister Yair Lapid, built his political career on secularism and fighting for causes such as civil marriage and including Haredim in the draft. Other leaders are also committed to reforming religious law and reducing subsidies to Haredi institutions. The first reform rabbi elected to Knesset, Gilad Kariv, heads an influential par, uh, par, uh, parliamentary committee. Even Prime Minister Naftali Bennett, the country's first Orthodox leader, is open to reducing the chief rabbinate's power and sees himself as a bridge between religious and secular Israelis. Commitments to a range of religious reforms were included in the agreement signed between Bennett's and Lapid's parties, which respectively led the coalition's right-wing and center-left blocks. Anat Hoffman, the executive director of the Israel Religious Action Center, a Reform Jewish group, wrote in June that the coalition's makeup is a huge opportunity. Haredi Party's constant presence in the government has been a major obstacle toward advancing pluralism and recognition of the reform and conservative movements in Israel, she said. With government ministers who believe in and work to advance pluralism, we have an opportunity to advance our issues in cooperation with the government. Under the terms of the Bennett-Lapid Agreement, the coalition will pass legislation reducing the chief rabbinate's control over kosher certification and Jewish conversion. The agreement also says the coalition will implement a plan to gradually increase Haredi quotas in the military draft and perhaps require others to perform non-military national service. It also stipulates reforms in the selection of the country's chief rabbis and the judges on its religious courts. Other coalition agreements which aren't binding but indicate the party's principles call for launching public transit on Shabbat, ensuring stores can remain open on Shabbat, advancing toward civil marriage, and increasing LGBTQ rights. It's also likely that the government will recommit to a 2016 plan to expand a space at the Western Wall for egalitarian prayer. Some of these initiatives already are underway. Israel's religious services minister recently unveiled a plan to license a range of independent kosher certifiers. The finance ministry is cutting subsidies that favored some Haredi families, and plans regarding conversion, the draft, and the Western Wall have already been laid out. But even if all of the coalition's reforms are enacted, their effect will be moderate at most. Many of the proposals are more about changing the way religious services are regulated and provided, and less about the end, uh, ending the orthodox monopoly over Israeli religious life. Barring a drastic, uh, drastic development, Israel still won't enact civil marriage, let alone same-sex marriage. Buses won't run nationally on Shabbat, and the chief rabbinate will still exist. An American-style separation of religion and state is not in the cards. That's partly because it's hard to change a 73-year-old status quo and because of the fragile makeup of the coalition. It essentially holds a one-seat majority in Parliament, so if any one of its lawmakers isn't behind a bill, the measure will fail. That was illustrated to almost comic effect early this month, when a lawmaker doomed a bill to reform the religious courts, pressing the wrong button, and accidentally voting no 
instead of yes. And none of these reforms will come to pass if the government does not pass a budget in the next few months. Failure to do so would trigger automatic elections. In addition, there is no guarantee that all the parties will agree to these reforms. For all his talk about unity and religious pluralism, Bennett is still orthodox and has orthodox allies. He has shown no desire to sap Israel's orthodox religious establishment of all its power. In addition, Ra'am, the coalition's Islamist party, is a staunch opponent of LGBTQ rights and civil marriage. The last time that Israel's coalition attempted a meaningful reform of religious policy in 2013 and 14, it was unsuccessful. Then, as now, the changes were spearheaded by Lapid and Bennett, who were first-time ministers elected as fresh faces on Israel's political scene. That government embarked on a program to draft the vast majority of Haredi men, reform conversion, mandate the teaching of math and English in Haredi schools, and cut subsidies to Haredi institutions. But when Haredi parties entered the next government in 2015, they promptly rolled back all the changes. In the last Knesset, people tried to blur Judaism and to strengthen democracy at Judaism's expense. Yair Eiserman, a spokesman for a Haredi politician, told JTA in 2015, We have an opportunity in the present government to strengthen Israel's definition as a Jewish state. Despite all the challenges, activists say the government still has an incentive to pursue religious reform, if only to show that it's accomplishing something despite its deep divisions. Religious issues could be the common thread between the parts of the government, wrote Tani Frank of Ne'emani Torah Avodah, an orthodox group that supports pluralism, in the Israel publication Calculist. These are issues everyone can agree on. Asked in a survey last year to rank the most important religion and state issues, Israeli Jews prioritized things that would change their everyday lives, like having public transit on Shabbat, allowing stores to be open on Shabbat, or recognizing civil marriage. Issues that tend to excite American Jewish organizations, like the non-Orthodox base at the Western Wall, or funding for the Reform and Conservative Jewish movements, ranked at the very bottom of the list. There are relatively few active Reform and Conservative Jews in Israel, and prayer arrangements at the Western Wall aren't that relevant to most Israelis who live outside of Jerusalem and rarely visit the site. Paradoxically, however, the fact that few Israelis care about the Western Wall plan may increase its chances of success. Yitzhar Hess, a former leader of the Israeli conservative movement, told Haaretz that the plan was low-hanging fruit and calls for the government to take on the Western Wall issue gained momentum earlier this month after Orthodox protesters, protesters disrupted and heckled conservative worshippers in the non-Orthodox space on Tisha B'Av, the Jewish day of mourning. In a coalition with, a deep, with deep ideological divides, a relatively unobjectionable program like the Western Wall Plan may be one of the first to win approval. But at the same time, Religious Affairs Minister Matan Kahana cautioned activists not to hold their breath. Before taking on the wall issue, he said the government has to focus on passing a budget by November. Otherwise, it won't be able to do anything at all. 
And next from JTA, GOP candidate for Virginia House likens being a conservative teacher to being Jewish among Nazis. A history teacher running for the Virginia House of Delegates said that being a conservative teacher in Virginia today is akin to being Jewish in Germany during the 1930s. To come out and say that you're a teacher on the right is almost as dangerous as saying, as almost saying, going through Germany in the 1930s and saying, I'm Jewish. It's gotten that bad, Julie Perry said Wednesday in an online event entitled Educators for Youngkin Coalition. Glenn Youngkin is the Republican nominee for governor. Think about what's happened with Tanner Cross, Perry said. Tanner Cross is a Loudoun County teacher. The school system suspended for saying in a public forum that he would address transgender students by their birth gender pronouns. The court issued an injunction against the suspension and Cross is suing the school system. A number of Republicans over the last year, including the prominent House representatives Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert, have likened coronavirus restrictions and safety measures to the Nazi treatment of Jews, drawing rebukes from Jewish groups who say it cheapens the horrors inflicted on Jews at the time. Jews targeted by Nazis in the 1930s, the period leading up to the Holocaust, which historians generally say started in 1941, were stripped of their property and livelihoods, beaten, deported, and frequently murdered. The Democratic Party of Virginia condemned Perry's statement and called on Youngkin to denounce Perry. Glenn Youngkin and the Virginia House Republican Caucus must condemn these remarks and end their support of Perry's campaign, the party said in a statement. Otherwise, Virginians will have no choice but to interpret their silence as an endorsement of her anti-Semitism. Perry's forcefully endorsed Youngkin during this session, and Youngkin's political action committee has given the largest donation, $3,000, to Perry's campaign to win the 86th district, straddling Loudoun and Fairfax counties. The seat is currently held by a Democrat. Perry, in a statement, regretted how she phrased her observation, but said that it emerged from having been bullied. It was never my intention to be disrespectful, she, she told Virginia Scope, a political newsletter. I wish I could go back and express what I said differently to more accurately convey the fear and intimidation I and my many fellow teachers have felt in the face of the political activists calling us racists and saying they wish we were dead. Even though one of my grandparents was Jewish, I was called a Nazi just because I don't agree with the far-left agenda invading our schools. Youngkin's campaign said Curry was right to express regret, but also agreed with her broader point. Julie has said she wishes she had expressed her point differently, and we agree, a spokesman for Youngkin told the Jewish Telegraphic Agency. She's absolutely right that teachers who don't support the radical left-wing political agenda that McAuliffe is forcing into classrooms have been targeted, bullied, and intimidated. Just recently, we saw a Fairfax school official say, People like Julie should die, and the leader of the local Democratic Party actually applauded that. Michelle Leet, an official with the Virginia and Fairfax County PTAs, lost both jobs earlier this month when she said at a rally, let them die. Conservatives said she was referring to parents who opposed critical race theory. But Leedy told the Washington Post she was referring to the ideas they espoused. Fox News reported that the chairman of Fairfax County Democrats, Brian Graham, 
appears to be applauding when Leet makes the offending comment. Virginia has, over the last decade, transitioned from a Republican to a Democrat-leaning state. Perry and other educators during the session decried what they said were lowered standards caused, they said in part, by mandates to emphasize equity in teaching. Perry, who teaches world history, said she was affronted by changes to curriculum on the Roman era and the colonial era in the Americas. They want us to teach how they were certain there were certain groups of people oppressed in Rome, and it's so sad because Rome had so many accomplishments, she said. To see that taking away is you're taking away history. Perry also complained that she was forced to teach that the British abused Pocahontas, the Poetan uh, princess who was held captive for ransom by American colonists. She converted to Christianity while in captivity and married a colonist, John Rolfe. Israel is the first country to start giving a third dose of the COVID vaccine shot to its population in an effort to stem the spread of the Delta variant. Those older than 60 are the first to get the booster from health care providers. President Isaac Herzog was among the first in that group. Benjamin Netanyahu, the former prime minister and current leader of the parliamentary opposition, got his shot on camera and encouraged others to vaccinate. Prime Minister Naftali Bennett is younger than 60. I'm proud we're the first country to vaccinate with a third dose, Herzog said, according to the Times of Israel. The step we are taking here is an important one for social solidarity in the state of Israel. The third dose aims to provide an extra layer of protection to the elderly who are at higher risk for serious illness and death. Pfizer, which has manufactured the vast majority of Israel's vaccine doses, also recommended a third dose. Earlier this year, Israel led the world in getting shots into arms and in March became the first country to vaccinate more than half its population. Case numbers plummeted, but they have spiked again in recent weeks from the Delta variant. Carl Levin, the Jewish Michigander who spent 36 years as a fierce inquisitor in the Senate, has died at 87. The Levin Center at Wayne State University Law School announced Levin's passing on Thursday. It did not give a date or cause of death, but Levin was diagnosed with lung cancer four years ago. The center, named for Levin, focuses on the passion of his career, government oversight. Levin, first elected to the Senate in 1978, became a state's longest-serving senator. From 2001 until his retirement in 2015, Levin served as the chairman or ranking member of the Senate Armed Service Committee. He was always a little disheveled and spoke softly, and his staffers described him as a rarity, a kind and accommodating boss in the world's most intense pressure chamber. Carl Levin was a giant of a senator and a giant of a human being with a big heart and a kind soul. He made his mark and will go down in history as one of the best, former California Senator Barbara Boxer told the JTA. Levin could be fierce in eliciting testimony in the Senate as chairman of the Subcommittee on Investigations, hauling Goldman Sachs executives before his committee in 2010 amidst the carnage of the 2008 financial collapse, he said, quoting an internal email, you knew it was a shitty deal and you didn't tell your clients. Does that bother you at all? He repeated shitty deal half a dozen times in two minutes and his subjects squirmed on camera. 
Levin's liberal economic outlook was shaped as he watched the diminishment of his once muscular and beloved city, Detroit. He fought hard for car manufacturers in Congress, knowing the lifeblood that they were for his state's working class. He worked as a taxi driver while in college. He said he knew Detroit's every block and on an assembly line at Chrysler. Levin was a dove who spoke out early against the George W. Bush administration's plans to invade Iraq, but as chairman of the committee that shaped military policy, he was also a defender of protections for the armed forces, sometimes to what fellow Democrats uh, was a fault. He successfully prevented bids to take investigations of sexual misconduct out of the hands of the line of command. Levin told interviewers he grew up in a middle-class household in Detroit and that his parents, Saul and Bess Levin, were Zionists. Bess was active in Hadassah. His brother Sandy and I and our sister Hannah used to call ourselves Hadassah orphans because when we got home in the afternoon, my mother was never there, he said in an oral history for the Detroit Jewish Federation. She was volunteering for Hadassah. Levin was a go-to senator for lobbyists from the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee and was attentive to their requests for defense assistance to Israel. However, he parted ways with AIPAC when the lobby, heeding the Israeli government at the time, opposed the emerging Iran nuclear deal in 2015. Even after his retirement in 2015, as the deal neared completion, Levin remained influential, using his former colleagues to back the deal. He was devoted to the entire state, traveling to its farthest corners to meet constituents. A staffer recalled to JTA that he convened the staff after a woman in an airport complained to him that she had not heard back from his office after writing. The talk, the staffer said, was serious, but not a rebuke and not unkind. Levin's older brother, Sander Levin, was elected to the U.S. House of Representatives in 1982, and from 2010 to 2012, when Sander was the chairman of the Tax Writing Ways and Means Committee and Carl chaired the Senate Armed Service Committee, they were the most powerful brothers in Washington. They were throughout their lives the closest of friends. Sander, who retired in 2019, replaced by his son and Carl's nephew Andy Levin, described his sadness in 2014, anticipating Carl's retirement. We've been the longest-serving siblings in the history of Congress, Sandra Levin told the Detroit Free Press. We were raised together and have always been very close. We roomed together at law school. Whenever there were issues of common interests, we talked quite a lot. And we sat together for 32 State of the Union addresses, so it will be very different not sitting together this year. Senator Ted Cruz is blocking the advance of a bill that would promote normalization between Israel and Arab states because it includes language enshrining a two-state solution as the preferred U.S. outcome to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Cruz is proposing amended language that does not remove a reference to a two-state outcome but makes it clear that it should be Israel's prerogative. Senator Cruz believes that America should support our allies and that it's not the place of American diplomats to dictate to our allies what to do with their sovereign territory. A spokesman for Cruz, a Texas Republican, told the Jewish Telegraphic Agency on Thursday. Until recently, there was bipartisan agreement in Congress mandating support for our Israeli allies in negotiations, but this bill is a radical departure that would change U.S. policy from supporting Israel to pressuring Israel. Senator Cruz opposes that change. 
Cruz is using his prerogative as a senator to impede swift passage of the bill, the Washington Free Beacon, a conservative news outlet, first reported. JTA confirmed the move. Otherwise, there is bipartisan support for the bill, which has a Republican, Rob Portman of Ohio, as a lead sponsor. The measure would mandate the U.S. government to build on the success of last year's Abraham Accords, which normalized relations between Israel and the United Arab Emirates, Sudan, Morocco, Bahrain, and which were brokered by the Trump administration. The Accords are one of the rare areas of foreign policy agreement between the Trump and Biden administrations. Last month, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee advanced the bill to the full Senate. Cruz has backed the measure before the two-state language was added shortly before its consideration by the committee. An official in Cruz's office told JTA that the senator would lift the block if the sponsors would again consider his amendment to change the language. Only two other Republican senators on the committee joined Cruz in favoring the amendment. The Cruz official told JTA that Cruz would lift his block on the bill even if the amendment were again rejected. The language now reads that it is U.S. policy to support a negotiated solution to the Israel-Palestinian conflict resulting in two states living side-by-side in peace, security, and mutual recognition. Cruz's amended language would read that it is U.S. policy to support the government of Israel in its ongoing efforts to reach a negotiated solution to the Israel-Palestinian conflict resulting in two states living side-by-side in peace, security, and mutual recognition. The official pointed to language in existing laws relating to U.S.-Israel cooperation that refers to supporting Israel in its efforts to reach a two-state solution but does not enshrine this two-state solution outcome as U.S. policy. J Street, the liberal Jewish Mideast policy group, blasted Cruz for using his senatorial prerogative to block the bill. The vast majority of American Jews and most American uh, voters support a two-state solution, J Street's Director of Government Affairs, Deborah Shushan, said in a release this week. Unfortunately for Senator Cruz, just like the status quo of occupation and injustice in Palestinian territory, this position is untenable. A majority of Democrats and Republicans in Congress recognize that a comprehensive two-state peace agreement is the only way to ensure that both the Israel and Palestinian peoples have freedom, can have freedom, self-determination, and safety. New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio has a message for Jewish New Yorkers. If you want to be fully vaccinated by Rosh Hashanah, you need to get your first Pfizer Pfizer shot by Monday. If you get the first one by Monday and then you follow up on time, you will be fully vaccinated by the start of the holiday, de Blasio said Thursday. So yet another incentive. Rosh Hashanah begins on the evening of September 6th. De Blasio's comments came as the city began rolling out carrots and sticks to encourage vaccines in response to a surge in COVID-19 cases in the city driven by the Delta variant. New York City will offer $100 to anyone who gets their first dose at a city-run vaccination site, and all city workers will have to be vaccinated or go through strict weekly testing protocols. The mayor touted the city's star-studded homecoming concert on August 21st in Central Park, saying tickets would be made available only to New Yorkers who show proof of having received at least one dose of the coronavirus vaccine. 
Paul Simon and Bruce Springsteen are among the headliners of the concert, which is meant to celebrate the city's rebound from the worst of COVID-19. Despite a recent poll showing Jews as the most likely of religious groups to be vaccinated, Orthodox Jewish neighborhoods tend to have vaccine rates significantly below the national average. The de Blasio stressed the importance of being vaccinated before gathering with family for the high holidays. Last fall, COVID cases increased around the time of the Jewish New Year, likely arising from the large number of people gathering in homes and synagogues to observe the holidays. That's a great thing to do looking forward to the holidays. Make sure every family member who's going to be in the room is fully vaccinated, de Blasio said. Three Jewish filmmakers who were detained by Nigerian security forces nearly three weeks ago have been released and returned to Israel. Rudy Rockman, Andrew Liebman, and Edouard David Benyam were in Nigeria as part of their work on a documentary about far-flung African Jewish communities. They were in an area that is home to the Igbo people and is the focal point of a separatist movement. A Jewish activist is leading the movement, which has entangled the, Jewish, the local Jewish population. The filmmakers have said their work is apolitical and has no connection to the rebellion. They had brought the Jewish community a Torah scroll. They said that activists shared images of the gift and misrepresented them as showing support for the separatist movement. On July 9th, Nigerian security forces arrested the trio who were held in Abuja, Nigeria's capital, until Wednesday. They arrived in Israel the following day. The local U.S., French, and Israeli embassies had advocated on their behalf. In a statement posted Wednesday to Instagram, the filmmakers said they were caged and held for 20 days in horrendous conditions, locked into a small cell, sleeping on the floor with no access to showers or clean clothes. Following five days of captivity, they were able to receive three meals a day from the local Chabad. They said in the statement that a local Igbo Jewish woman had been arrested along with them and detained separately. Although the team cannot continue their filming of Igbo Jewish life in Nigeria, their mission is not over and the story will be told, the statement said. At least 50 professors at the City University of New York have quit their union following passage of a resolution condemning Israel. The New York Post quoted James Davis, president of the Professional Staff Congress, as saying that the professors have quit in the wake of the resolution or signal their intention to do so. The union represents academic staff at CUNY. Davis suggested that there was an effort to bring back the disaffected professors. We are in active dialogue with members who have expressed concern over the resolution, he told the Post. The resolution, which was passed June 10th, was introduced in the wake of the Israel-Gaza conflict the previous month and referred to Israel's establishment as a settler colonial state in 1948, language often used to reject Israel's existence as a Jewish state. The measure describes the events leading up to the renewed fighting in May and during the conflict only in terms of Israeli attacks without referencing Hamas attacks on Israel. Hamas, the terrorist group that controls the Gaza Strip, launched the Gaza portion of the conflict with a barrage of rocket attacks on May 9th. The resolution also calls on the Union to consider joining the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement against Israel. Yadidya Langsam the chairman of Brooklyn College's Computer and Information Science Department launched the appeal to other faculty to resign from the union. 
He said the resolution made Jewish faculty feel unsafe. By endorsing this resolution, he had made many Jewish faculty and students uncomfortable with being associated with Brooklyn College and City University of New York to the point of fearing for our safety, he said in a letter to Davis quoted by the Post. Have you and your colleagues forgotten the exponential increase in anti-Semitic attacks against Jews in the New York City area? The SUNY system has 25 colleges spread across New York City's five boroughs. And next from JTA, Haredi Orthodox Mom is the face of a new Adidas campaign by Bonnie Azoulay. In 2016, Bidi Deutsch placed sixth in the Jerusalem Half Marathon. Watching Deutsch, an Israeli born in America, you would have never guessed that she had taken up running only four months earlier. The following year, she ran the Tel Aviv Marathon while seven months pregnant with her fifth child. Even while running, the Haredi Orthodox Deutsch dresses modestly following Jewish laws. She wears a headscarf, elbow-length shirt, and a knee-length skirt covering her leggings, unlikely attire for a star athlete. Just a few short years after her first race, Deutsch placed first in the 2018 Jerusalem Marathon. In 2019, she won Israel's National Championships Marathon in Tiberias, and she quickly became the Israeli national champion in the marathon and half marathon. Most notably, she qualified for the 2020 Olympics by ranking among the top 80 women runners in the world. Many women, particularly those who are religious, see Deutsch as a role model for observant Jewish athletes. We don't have a lot of female athlete role models in Israel, she says. I want to see more girls becoming athletes and pursuing that passion. My ultimate goal in life is to share the beauty of Judaism and impact people to spread light in that way because I did not dream about being an athlete ever. I wasn't like, oh, when I grow up, I want to be a professional runner. I didn't know that was such a thing. And though she became famous for her speed and positive spirit, disappointments soon arose. First, due to the pandemic, the Tokyo Olympics were postponed until 2021. When that happened, the women's marathon was moved from a Sunday to a Saturday, meaning that Deutsch needed to convince the International Olympic Committee to switch the date or else she could not compete in the race as it coincided with Shabbat. And then, in April 2020, runners needed to re-qualify for a spot in the Olympics, this time beating a new standard time of 2.29.30 or ranking in the top 80. Unfortunately, while Deutsch ran a new personal record of 2.31.39 in England, she didn't make the cutoff. After publicly fighting for months to switch the race date and show observant Jews around the world that their religion matters, Deutsch was disappointed by her race results. Still, she kept a positive attitude after this major setback. I know my time will come, she says, plus my PR is the same qualifying time for the World Championships, July 2022, which is a race not on Shabbos like the Olympics is. As much as I wanted to qualify for the Olympics, I knew that the chances of me actually being able to participate in the race were slim to none. It might take me a week or two weeks or even longer to get over this loss and process my emotions, she said on Instagram following her disappointing results. When everything fell apart, my first thought was that this is from Hashem, from God. Maybe this was to show the world that sometimes you don't reach the goals you set and how you deal with things when they don't work out as planned. 
Despite the setback, Adidas, one of the biggest sportswear companies in the world, took notice of Deutsch and decided to highlight her because of, not despite, her religious observance. With her usual headscarf, skirt, and long sleeves, Deutsch was featured in Adidas's Impossible is Nothing campaign, which hopes to unite people through sports and expand the limits of human possibilities. Within Israel, the campaign is hard to miss. It's online, and there's a giant billboard of Deutsch on the Ayalon Highway near Tel Aviv. I couldn't believe it, she says. It was a beautiful opportunity to make an impact as a proudly modest woman, and Adidas chose to highlight that aspect of me. I was so surprised that they wanted to highlight the fact that I'm a religious runner and that my faith is what moves me. It's not necessarily what you'd expect from a big sports company. Deutsch sees running and sports in general as a way to connect to Judaism. Here I am teaching Judaism through sports, she explains. By dressing modestly while running and still juggling the laws of Judaism, she, so, she shows people that you can be an observant Jew and still compete at the highest level. I love sport. I love pushing myself. I love challenging myself. I love running, she says. I'm using this gift that Hashem has given me in a way to fulfill my mission here. I'm really blessed. Since her race in England to qualify for the Olympics, Deutsch has begun to train for the Abbott World Marathon majors in Berlin this fall. The finish line will be at the historic Brandenburg Gate, where Hitler was appointed chancellor and proclaimed his plans to annihilate the Jews. I couldn't think of a more fitting way to demonstrate Am Yisrael Chai, the Jewish people lives, than by racing as a proud Orthodox Jewish mother, she says. Moms who want to have a family while chasing their dreams consider Deutsch to be their role model. I see a lot of women on track and field showing up and saying we can continue to pursue our careers and still have a family, she says. That is what's revolutionizing the track and field world, and I'm one of those women. Obviously, there's more to juggle and balance. There are so many things I can't do because I have a family. I can't go away for altitude training. I can't pick up and leave for six weeks. But at the same time, I see it as a great career opportunity for moms because my job's flexible. I don't train all day, and I have a lot more time with my kids. I'm doing something I love while being there for my family. And next from JTA, a gold mikveh, a Judaica museum, and a ballroom. Taiwan to get its first Jewish community center by Gabe Friedman. Seven years ago, the, lo the lone Chabad rabbi in Taiwan reached out to Jeffrey Schwartz, a Jewish businessman and philanthropist who had helped fund the country's small Jewish institutions for years. The rabbi, Shlomi Tabib, was wondering if Schwartz could fund the construction of a mikveh, a ritual bath in which Orthodox women immerse every month, according to ancient tradition. There was a problem. Schwartz, who had lived in Taiwan for decades after growing up in a conservative community in Cleveland, didn't know what a mikvah was. Once he learned, he believed there were not enough Orthodox residents in Taiwan to justify the construction costs, especially not when the region was still lacking a physical worship space. He said it's more important than a temple, Schwartz recalled. He said Orthodox women need them every month. I said, well, how many Orthodox people are there here that need it? He said, maybe one or two or three. I do a lot of philanthropic work here in Taiwan, and I said, there's a long list of people way ahead of you to get my money 
Schwartz said. But fast forward seven years and Schwartz is getting ready to open Taiwan's first ever Jewish community center. A $16 million complex spreading uh, 22,500 square feet and featuring a 300-person ballroom, kosher restaurant, classrooms, Judaica Museum with items from Schwartz's personal collection, and a synagogue led by Tabib, along with that once contentious mikvah complete with a gold-leaf ceiling and mosaics custom-made in Lebanon. The Jeffrey D. Schwartz Jewish Community Center, which was officially announced on Wednesday and is slated to open in December in Taipei, was designed with the help of Schwartz's wife, Na Tang, a Taiwanese musician and actress. Actress. Tabib and his family will live on site. Schwartz hopes the center will be a beacon of Jewish culture in a country of 23.5 million that has not historically had a large Jewish population. Estimates of the current number of Jews in Taiwan run between 500 and 1,000. For decades, they've come together in small makeshift spaces for services and social events, but have lacked a large central meeting place. In the 1970s and 80s, before the bulk of the region's manufacturing moved to China, Rabbi Ephraim Einhorn, now 102, hosted services for traveling businessmen in a hotel room. I said... With all these years that I've devoted to Taiwan, I need to build a legacy for the Jews, said Schwartz, who has lived in the island nation for nearly 50 years since graduating from college. He founded a business in 1975 that has grown into a conglomerate of companies offering supply chain services. When next generations come out, they're going to have a place that they can be proud of so they can understand you can still be Jewish in Taiwan and still be part of Taiwan's community. Schwartz's center is not affiliated with the Taiwan Jewish Community Group, which he had previously been a member of for decades. Since the pandemic, the community has grown into a vibrant and active community of expatriate Jewish families and Taiwanese local curious about Judaism. Recent dinners and holiday services run by a 34-year-old artist turned non-ordained rabbi Cantor who sings and incorporates instrumental music have drawn hundreds of people. But since the 1990s, the non-denominational group lacked a high attendance and verve at its holiday services. Schwartz respected Einhorn, who is still a member of the community, but could not envision him leading the new synagogue. A community needs a rabbi. I was either going to go out and hire a conservative or reform rabbi and bring them out from the States to Taiwan, and then it dawned on me one day, I don't want to go into competition with a rabbi here and steal from his flock, so to speak. Schwartz said, the local Chabad already met his needs on that front. It has a nice following of people, you know, a mixture, and there's very few Orthodox, mostly secular people and great events, and is open to everybody. Schwartz says he is still on friendly terms with the Taiwan Jewish Community Group and hopes their members attend the many events he plans to hold in the center's ballroom space with traveling speakers and thought leaders. Links between the two Jewish hubs are unavoidable among such a niche population. Glenn Leibowitz, this new center's head of communications, who during the day leads consulting giant McKinsey's communications team in the greater China region, 
has been friends with Ben Schwal, who heads the Taiwan Jewish community, since the two went to college together around 30 years ago. Leibowitz estimated that Tabib's local Taipei following numbered in the hundreds, in addition to Jews traveling through the country who often stop at the local Chabad outpost for services or kosher food. But Schwartz was until recently skeptical of the Chabad way of doing things. At first, he thought the Hasidic movement's strict adherence to Jewish law wouldn't make for a comfortable situation for the intermarried couples and less religious Jews Schwartz hoped to attract. He compared the concept to a hospital in which not all patients would receive the same treatment. If I need a doctor, the doctors there aren't going to see me. I'd have to go to the place down the street, he said. But a pivotal moment came a few years ago during a Holocaust remembrance event, a remembrance event that featured non-Jewish dignitaries when Schwartz watched to be passionately recite a prayer. That's when he knew he wanted the Chabad rabbi involved in his project. The Chabad rabbi, dressed in his black suit and black hat, got up. I said, you know, everybody in the audience here, they see that that's a Jewish person. It's a symbol of a Jewish person, Schwartz said. If, if you're building something for the long term, you need some consistency. And I'm not going to be here for the consistency, but I know the Orthodox side of it will keep it going. I'm happy that I have the Chabad as a partner because I know in 100 years they're going to be still doing the same thing. Tabib said Schwartz's offer, you're going to run the shul and the mikveh and everything having to do with religious, but everything else I'm going to run was a literal answer to his prayers. Jeffrey and I come from different backgrounds and do not always see things in the same light. Nevertheless, or perhaps, be, perhaps because of that, I feel this cooperation is bound for great success, Tabib wrote in an email. Jeffrey is very sincere and genuine, and when he shared with me his idea, I felt like my prayers were indeed answered. We are both motivated and are interested in the success of this project, not only for us, but for the future generations, God willing. Once we came together and discussed, we realized the question shouldn't be if, but how. Collaboration between Taiwan's religious and secular Jewish communities was necessary in this instance, Tabib said. Because if someone wanted to build a center in Taiwan only for religious Jews, they would probably be going out of business quite quickly. Schwartz has even come around to the ways of Chabad services, calling them beautiful. But the mikveh remained a logistical challenge on his end. The ritual baths cannot contain drains, and that confused the Taiwanese engineers Schwartz works with. I've learned everything you need to know about mikvahs that you were afraid to ask, he joked. I put a lot of work into this space. I want this whole center to be a monument to the Jews and Judaism because I know that if I take the Chinese to a rented apartment and say this is where we're going to celebrate, they're going to say, okay, don't call me next time. I want this to be something that we can all be proud of. And next from JTA, an opinion piece. Simon Biles exemplifies this Jewish value by Hannah S. Pressman. When I woke up on Tuesday, at first it seemed like any other morning. I had to get two kids ready for camp, fill water bottles, slather sunscreen, pack the snacks, and I had to get myself ready to attend Ladino class over Zoom, finish a worksheet, slurp coffee, practice rolling my R's, since I live on the West Coast, I'm used to being a little late on breaking news. As I yawned and stuffed Pirate's booty into a bag, I noticed a one-word text from my sister, Simone. 
At first I was confused. Then I remembered that the Olympic women's gymnastics team final had started four hours earlier. And I suddenly had half a world of things to catch up on in the wake of Simone Biles' withdrawal from the competition. What followed was a day of real-time drama, U.S. teammate heroics, Hoda Kotob appearing distressed, and so many hot takes, so many, about Biles' decision to scratch, i.e. exit the competition, after performing a vault and losing her air awareness partway through. Despite all the words already spilled out about the situation, I'm here to offer another take informed both by Jewish tradition and by my personal gymnastics fandom. Like many women and men, I've been a gymnastics fan since forever. This is not related to any personal involvement or skill in the sport. The most I've ever been able to do is a crooked cartwheel. However, since the 1992 Olympics, my sister and I have been hooked. That year, we recorded the women's gymnastics team final and literally wore out the VHS tapes replaying them. I can still hum every note of Shannon Miller's floor routine, and I remember a television profile that showed Miller tapping her feet on the floor while studying at school, a superstar athlete for the aspiring Quiz Bowl set. As each Olympic cycle approaches, my sister and I watch all the coverage of the gymnastics trials and analyze everything together. We have become well-versed in the sport's lingo of tucks, pikes, and twists. We have absorbed the backstories of our favorite competitors like Dominique Dawes, Sean Johnson, Ali Reisman, Lori Hernandez, and Biles, considered by most to be the sport's greatest champion. As we have aged from tweens to teenagers, from young women to adult moms, my sister and I have continued watching other young women just like us, but with glitter-streaked hair and killer abdominal muscles, face unbelievable pressure to perform perfectly. For fans of the sport, it has been amazing to watch the U.S. evolve into a global Olympic superpower, winning Olympic team medals at every cycle since 1992 and frequently producing gymnasts who could win all around in event titles at the World Championships. We've been watching long enough to know that historically it was not always such a given that the American women would win anything, much less piles of gold medals. We are witnessing the dawn of a movement wherein athletes are setting boundaries to preserve their mental and physical health, creating their own version of pikuach nefesh, the Jewish principles of preserving life above all else. Earlier this summer, Naomi Osaka famously stepped back from the French Open after a dispute with the tennis powers that be about appearing for news conferences. Citing her history of depression and societal anxiety, she also skipped Wimbledon to continue focusing on her mental health. For an athlete as globally influential as Osaka, the decision sent ripples beyond professional sports, prompting questions about how employers and organizations respond when someone requires support for mental health challenges or expresses a need for self-care. As Tuesday in Seattle came to a close, I found myself thinking more about what it means to celebrate an athlete's story. Removing herself from the competition may not be what the networks had in mind for Biles' TV-ready moment of Olympic glory, but the message she sent was more powerful than any vault she might have performed. She communicated to the world that the fact that life is precious, our souls are precious, and we must do whatever we can to keep ourselves safe. Everything else is commentary. Well, that's all the time we have this week for the Jewish News Hour. This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I thank you very much for listening.